The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. This is what a tipping point looks like. This is Thursday, July 26th, 2018. Thank you very much for your time and for supporting this independent news through the links from my sponsors and through the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. The Sisyphus effect is the struggle to push something uphill. The snowball effect is the almost uncontrollable descent of that something down the other side of the hill. At precisely in between those two sides is a place called the tipping point. From that vantage point, you can see the farthest you'll ever see in both directions. Welcome to the tipping point. There's a lot to see. Tension with Iran, an uncooperative North Korea, a league of unhappy allies, and Russia is still trying to sabotage our democracy. To use the Trump vernacular, everyone says so. The heads of all our intelligence agencies, National Intelligence Director Dan Coats, FBI Director Chris Wray, and all the others, say the interference has already begun. It continues, says the FBI Director, adding, and we could be just a moment away from it going to the next level. The Justice Department says it'll start alerting individual Americans and U.S. companies targeted by Russian hacking and disinformation. Quoting Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, exposing schemes is an important way to neutralize them, adding, the people have a right to know if foreign governments are targeting them with propaganda. The head of Microsoft Security says hackers have already started targeting candidates in at least three crucial midterm elections. Internet security experts at other companies say they've noticed it too since earlier this year, phishing, using a fake website that was set up by Russian hackers two years ago. Several security firms believe the hackers are Russian. They admit the hackers are not as busy as they were two years ago, but, quoting one, that doesn't mean we're not going to see it, adding, there's a lot of time left before the election. All 435 seats in the House are at stake on the first Tuesday of November, as well as one-third of the 100 Senate seats. This past week, a Republican-controlled House of Representatives in Washington voted against additional spending on election security, saying the states will have plenty of money to cover that, and the Democrats were just being dramatic. Tea Party Republican Jim Jordan of Ohio said the answer to election security is voter ID cards. As of this week, you can see for yourself that the 2018 disinformation campaign has begun, and it's being led by the President of the United States. The real Donald J. Trump tweeted this week an old video that shows Hillary Clinton talking about the power of Russia. In the upper right corner of that video is a logo that identifies the source of it as Russia's Channel One, owned and operated by the Kremlin. The U.S. president was retweeting Russian propaganda more than once this week. Trump or his people have edited reality to try to edit history, a rewriting of history in real time. At the Helsinki Summit News Conference with Russia's Vladimir Putin, Putin was asked by a reporter if he favored Trump in the 2016 election and whether he directed his people to help Trump's campaign. Yes, I did, said Putin to both questions, very plainly, in a video that's been viewed by hundreds of millions of people repeatedly. The White House transcript of that news conference omits the reporter's question and truncates Putin's answer. And that's the version that would have gone into our national archives. That's this White House's version of history. And it wasn't just an oversight. White House reporters pointed out the omission to administration officials who have now acknowledged the error 
but have not corrected it on the White House website. The Kremlin's transcript omits both the question and the answer, erasing from its history that question about what Putin wanted and what he did to get what he wanted. The Trump White House had followed the lead of the Kremlin instead of American law. And these are not the only altered records from the Trump administration of late. Stay tuned. For the first time in our nation's history, a federal judge has ruled that the Constitution's emoluments clause applies to a president. That clause says public officials may not receive payments from foreign governments. But Trump has, by not divesting himself of his business and by allowing that business to accept foreign money in its dealings. The judge's ruling means the attorneys general of Maryland and the District of Columbia may proceed with their lawsuit in which they accuse Trump of violating the emoluments clause. The ruling means Trump business dealings can now be dragged into the daylight after having been sequestered in the dark throughout his presidency. The Trump organization says it took in $150,000 in foreign profits last year and Donald J. Trump is still its owner. And foreign officials still make it a point to stay at his hotels. But it was audio recordings that brought down President Richard M. Nixon 44 years ago. Audio recordings may also mean legal jeopardy for Trump. This week we heard one of them, and we were told we'd be hearing more. Today, the Washington Post is reporting that federal prosecutors have in their possession more than 100 Cohen recorded tapes, and that Trump is on more of them. It's been nearly four months since we learned that former Trump lawyer Michael Cohen had sometimes recorded his conversations and occasionally played them back for his colleagues later. In Cohen's New York and some other states, that's perfectly legal. We learned of Cohen's practice at around the time the FBI seized all of Cohen's electronic devices and all his papers. Federal prosecutors in New York were investigating Cohen for possible bank fraud and possible campaign finance violations. They may have found a serious violation of campaign finance laws. Four months ago, when we learned of Cohen's propensity to record, we didn't know if any of those recordings would include the voice of Donald Trump. But now we know. They do. And they have to do with that possible campaign finance violation. This tale of this possible law-breaking began with the August 2016 claim by former Playboy model Karen McDougal that unlike Stormy Daniels' alleged one-night stand with Trump, she, McDougal, had had a 10-month-long love affair with Trump that began shortly after Trump married Melania. The National Enquirer immediately bought the exclusive rights to McDougal's story and then sat on it. We learned four days before the election that the Enquirer had bought McDaniel's story and killed it. The Enquirer's publisher is one of the nation's biggest Trump supporters, supporting his guy during the campaign and throughout the nearly two years that have followed. So the Enquirer didn't publish the story, apparently as a favor to Donald Trump. It had spent that money to help Trump's campaign by saving it from damage, and it did so without reporting that spending as a campaign contribution. And usually that's illegal. But Trump's then-lawyer Michael Cohen didn't like the idea of his client's potential blackmail data still being in someone else's hands, even if those hands did belong to their friend David Pecker at the Trump-supporting National Enquirer. There's a reference on the tape to our friend David. I think we need to bring this in-house, Cohen says on the tape of his chat with Trump just two months before the election. Cohen tells Trump they can control the story better that way. In case he gets hit by a bus, says Trump. Yes, Trump also speaks on this recording, unsurprised by a discussion of the hush money paid to Ms. McDougal.
Trump's lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, claims the recording vindicates his client. Giuliani says the tape fails to prove that Trump knew of the payoff. To say otherwise would have caught Trump in another lie, the one in which Trump claimed on Air Force One that he knew nothing of the payoff. Giuliani's transcript of the tape portrays Cohen recommending a cash payment and Trump objecting, recommending that Cohen pay by check instead. But that's not what happened now that we've heard the tape. What we do hear is that Trump was the first to mention cash and that Michael Cohen responded by saying, no, 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 no. Opposite of Giuliani's claims and his faulty transcript, the tape shows it was Trump, not Cohen, who brought up making a cash payment, apparently to the Inquirer, to keep Karen McDougal's silence agreement in-house. And it shows Trump unsurprised by the Inquirer payment, which means he was lying that day on Air Force One. On that tape, Trump asks his former lawyer how they might go about buying the rights to McDougal's story. And on that transcript from Rudy Giuliani, Trump was again writing his own version of history in a false account. Giuliani says the recording is evidence that seems to clear Trump of any wrongdoing. Except it doesn't. The conversation shows that Trump knew about McDougal's claims and that he knew about the effort that had begun two months earlier to keep her from talking. The recording has the two men talking about setting up a go-between corporation to make the actual payment. And the conversation makes it clear that Trump and Cohen were ready to write a check to reimburse the National Enquirer for the hush money it was the first to pay to Karen McDougal. And at one point, the recording ends mid-conversation. Fact, not opinion. This tape alone would have brought down any other president. Giuliani claims he's not worried. Quoting him, there's no way the president's going to be talking about setting up a corporation and using cash unless you're a complete idiot. And the president's not an idiot. Giuliani has turned to the not-an-idiot defense. That $150,000 payment to the Inquirer, discussed by Trump and Cohen, ultimately never happened. Whoever ultimately got stuck with the McDougal bill, presumably their friend David Pecker, didn't report it for the campaign contribution that it was. That's one item on the agenda of federal prosecutors who are also investigating the $130,000 payoff to Stormy Daniels, a payment that was fronted by Michael Cohen. In the meantime, the National Enquirer is now also the focus of the Mueller investigation. While the tabloid claims its efforts were journalistic, not political, and that it is therefore protected by the First Amendment. The right to publish or not publish. In the end, neither Trump nor Cohen reimbursed the Enquirer for that 150 grand payment to Karen McDougal. And that supports Trump's reputation for expecting loyalty and not returning it. And Michael Cohen himself would find that out personally two years later. Cohen's lawyer, Lanny Davis, says Cohen has turned over a new leaf and is no longer the man who would, as he had once said, take a bullet for Donald Trump. Davis says Cohen's on a new path. He calls the release of this tape and others a reset button to tell the truth and to let the chips fall where they may. Cohen's recordings were among the tens of thousands of items seized in an FBI raid of Cohen, and the vast majority of the material seized from his homes and offices proved to be unprotected by privilege. This particular tape was protected by privilege, but lawyers on both sides have now made it very public. A transcript of the recording was first released by Trump's legal team, apparently to rob Cohen of what might have been one of his best tools for negotiating lesser charges from federal prosecutors, that's when Cohen's lawyer released the tape itself, showing the claims of Trump's lawyers to be incorrect. 
In addition to these separate suspicions of bank fraud and campaign finance law violations, Cohen's also being investigated by special counsel Robert Mueller for whatever role Cohen may have played in the relationship between the Trump campaign and Russia. Prosecutors already have more than 100 audio recordings from Cohen, recordings that don't fall under attorney-client privilege. We don't yet know what's on those recordings, but we know what's on this one, and we expect to be hearing at least some of the others. Your favorite president did nothing wrong, tweeted the president with an exclamation mark, and then he resumed his campaign of disrespecting the highest law enforcement agencies in our nation and encouraging his millions of followers to do the same. And he attacked Michael Cohen, who once said he'd take a bullet for Trump and who'd served as Trump's loyal fixer for 10 years. Trump tweeted, inconceivable that the government would break into a lawyer's office early in the morning, almost unheard of. To interject a correction, they didn't break in. They had a warrant. Investigators get a warrant when they have reason to fear that crucial evidence might be destroyed, which is why they also took Cohen's shredder and painstakingly pieced the papers back together. Inconceivable, wrote Trump, that a lawyer would tape a client, perhaps illegal. The good news, tweeted Trump, is that your favorite president did nothing wrong, exclamation point. And then Trump called for an end to the Mueller investigation because of the FBI's wiretap application for Carter Page. Within 18 hours of his tweet threatening Iran, Trump was back to tweeting about the Russia probe, calling it a disgrace to America. They should drop the discredited Mueller witch hunt now, he wrote. Trump's Republicans in Congress are doing their part to help make that happen, Two conservative lawmakers have introduced articles of impeachment against Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, and they have the backing of nine other members of the so-called Freedom Caucus. With Rosenstein out of the way, Trump could appoint a new Deputy Attorney General, one who, unlike Rosenstein, would fire Special Prosecutor Robert Mueller and order an end to that pesky investigation. These two Trump-supporting Tea Party Republicans do not have the backing of House Speaker Paul Ryan or Trey Gowdy, not yet anyway, and they're not trying to force an immediate vote. But they have the impeachment ready should a majority of Republican House members care to join them. However small, it's another step forward for the Fire Mueller campaign. And it's a warning shot to Rod Rosenstein. And then this happened. Remember those dueling memos in February from the House Intelligence Committee? They were about the warrants that permitted the surveillance of Trump campaign advisor Carter Page. The Republican majority on that committee issued the official report, which declared the FBI had abused its surveillance powers. And the Democrats on the committee issued a rebuttal, declaring that the FBI had acted properly and that Carter Page needed watching. We now know which side was closer to the truth. On Saturday, the White House released the previously secret documents that authorized that warrant. They showed that the FBI acted properly and that Carter Page warranted watching. Now, because of the ongoing investigation, the documents are still heavily redacted, but they include, quote, the FBI believes Page has been the subject of targeted recruitment by the Russian government and the phrase undermine and influence the outcome of the 2016 U.S. presidential election in violation of U.S. criminal law, end quote. That's followed by a line that reads, Mr. Page is a former foreign policy advisor to a candidate for U.S. president. It was remarkable the Trump administration would release these documents, but it did so because of a freedom of information lawsuit filed by the New York Times and other news outlets. And in releasing wiretap warrants for the first time in 40 years, Trump claimed the documents vindicate him. 
He did so without offering any evidence. He said the documents he'd been pressured to release showed that the Justice Department and the FBI had misled the courts from the start of the Russia probe. He claimed without evidence that, quote, Trump campaign was illegally being spied upon for the political gain of crooked Hillary and the DNC. He did not mention the FBI's detailed evidence as to why it was interested in Carter Page, who had once described himself as, quote, an informal advisor to the staff at the Kremlin. Republican Senator Marco Rubio, who was hacked in 2016, wasn't buying it. Himself a target of Russian hacking, Rubio says, I don't believe looking into Carter Page means they were spying on the campaign. Trey Gowdy chimed in saying, I don't have an issue with looking into people that have cozy relationships with Russia. I do have an issue, added Gowdy, when you rely on unvetted opposition research. Gowdy was defending his claim in that February House Intelligence Committee memo that the Russia investigation was launched by the Steele dossier. The warrants released over the weekend by the Trump administration show that it was not. It shows that the FBI had its own doubts about the dossier until it was able to confirm some of them. The documents show that the FBI was honest in its assessments to the FISA court judges and that the judges were right to approve the warrants. But Gowdy's comments and Trump's show that neither Trump nor his Republicans are through taking shots at the highest institutions of federal law enforcement to try to preserve this presidency. Trump says he thinks all those redactions made to protect the integrity of the investigation are proof there's something fishy about the investigation of his campaign. He was so incensed he used the words rigged, scam, and witch hunt together in a single tweet with an exclamation mark. And Russia test-fired a new air defense missile in Kazakhstan as Putin ponders whether to accept Trump's invitation to the White House. At a time like this, Trump is no doubt thrilled that Brett Kavanaugh has accepted his nomination to the U.S. Supreme Court. Kavanaugh is, after all, the conservative judge who, unlike the others, has expressed support for strong presidential powers and hostility toward administrative agencies, including prosecutors. Trump is no doubt relieved that Kavanaugh has come out strongly against the investigating, questioning, subpoenaing, suing, or prosecuting of a sitting president. Kavanaugh did not hold this view when he assisted in the subpoenaing of then-President Clinton, but he holds it now, and there's little chance the Democratic minority can stop this nomination. And Kavanaugh has come along just now, just as the question of a subpoena has come up to get Trump to sit down with Robert Mueller to answer a few burning questions. 32 people have now been indicted by Mueller for a total of 187 criminal charges. In addition to the more than two dozen Russians Mueller's charged, four former Trump aides have been indicted. Two of those aides and a Trump campaign official are now cooperating with the Mueller investigation. And Trump's campaign manager is cooling his heels in jail between court appearances on charges that include conspiracy against the United States. In the meantime, Trump endeavors to silence his most credible opposition. He's proposed and is looking into stripping security credentials from those who criticize his policies and his methods. That would, of course, include former CIA Director John Brennan, former FBI Director James Comey, former Deputy FBI Director Andrew McCabe, former National Intelligence Director James Clapper, and former National Security Directors Michael Hayden and Susan Rice, all former Obama administration officials. Comey and McCabe had already surrendered their clearances, as had others on that list. Hayden says he never uses his. 
Most recently, former CIA chief Brennan had called Trump's recent dealings with Russia treasonous. But there's a very good reason former national security officials have that security clearance, because they take with them knowledge that could benefit the United States. They are resources that were once used as consultants to their replacements, especially in urgent situations. But now these informed people who have spoken against Trump are being cut off. The nation's security clearance decisions are now based on politics and politics alone. Trump makes the decisions now. And anyone who questions his policies or methods is banished with the mighty power of his presidency now being used to punish and intimidate. And just before Trump's choice to run the Veterans Administration was confirmed this week by the Senate, we learned of the loyalty preparations being made at the VA ahead of the new boss's arrival. It was a purge of those who hadn't already left, a weeding out of VA workers who may have disagreed with the policies and methods of this president. Just to make sure they were all on the same page over at the VA. Some were fired, others reassigned. A similar thing happened in Ryan Zinke's interior department. These purges were not just of those who had served under the Obama administration. They included those who had served under several administrations for both parties. The problem wasn't that these VA employees were loyal to someone other than Trump. They were not loyal to Trump and only Trump. There were more than a dozen career civil servants demoted at the VA. The last head of the VA, David Shulkin, had been forced out because he was resisting the Trump administration's goal of privatizing the VA, also a goal of the Republican Party. The new guy, Robert Wilkie, has expressed a little more flexibility on that point. But the get-ready-for-Wilkie purge had even included a scheduler with whom Wilkie was specifically looking forward to working with. Republicans in the Senate have told Wilkie it's now his job to fix the morale problem at the Veterans Administration. The Trump government will not tolerate dissent, and it continues to target its political rivals. Attorney General Jeff Sessions spoke to a conservative group this week and fired them up with words including snowflake and go get em. But the crowd was fired up from the beginning of Sessions' appearance and began chanting their mantra, lock her up. At one point, the nation's top law enforcement official, Attorney General Jeffrey Beauregard Sessions, joined them by saying into his microphone, lock her up. Sessions has been under steady pressure from Trump to do exactly that. The president's personal charity may have been his personal charity. The New York State Department of Taxation is investigating the Trump Foundation, an alleged charity run by Trump and three of his grown children. The law is the law, says Governor Cuomo, adding, if they believe it should be referred for prosecution, they will refer. The Trump Foundation used donations to cover lawsuit settlements to make an illegal campaign contribution, and to buy a $10,000 painting of Trump, which would be charitably hung on the wall at one of his golf joints. New York's attorney general had already filed suit against the Trump Foundation, accusing it of persistently illegal conduct. This lawsuit asked that the foundation pay back the people who were cheated nearly $3 million in penalties, the dissolving of the foundation, and the banning of Trump and his kids from serving on the boards of any other charities for at least a year. And the New York Attorney General's office did, in fact, refer its findings to both the Justice Department and the IRS. 
If there were ever a fatal tipping point in any American presidency, this would seem to be that tipping point. Things are not going well for the nation, and they're not going well for Donald Trump. He's still taking flack for his secret chat with Vladimir Putin, followed by a series of incredible statements giving a pass to Russia while denigrating American intelligence and law enforcement. The backlash came quickly and it lingered and lingers still, while Trump still calls the Helsinki meeting with Putin a success. Even surprising Republican names had a problem with Trump's behavior and they were not satisfied with his insincere attempts to walk back some of the damage so everyone could go about their business. Democrats were, for the first time, speaking openly about the appearance that Trump is somehow compromised by Russia. Then there's Trump's utter frustration with the lack of progress with North Korea and now this not unexpected clash with Iran. His ex-lawyer has evidence that Trump was involved in a hush money payment to a former Playboy model to silence her claims of an extramarital affair. And then there's the Russia investigation, which grinds forward despite his best efforts and the best efforts of Republicans in Congress to discredit that investigation. Some of Trump's people face serious charges and some are ready to testify. The feds have Trump's old lawyer on a tight leash and they have his former campaign manager in jail. The trial of campaign manager Paul Manafort begins this coming Tuesday, and at Robert Mueller's request, the judge in Manafort's case has granted immunity to five unnamed people willing to testify against Manafort so long as they're not prosecuted for crimes they may have committed. At least some of these things had to have been swirling around in Trump's head as he got that not unexpected threat from Iran. He had, after all, pulled out of a mostly peaceful nuclear deal with Iran, and he had threatened Iran with a return of old sanctions. That added the additional insult of violating the agreement as soon as the United States' involvement in the deal officially ends in a couple of weeks from now. Iran's president has responded by saying that peace with Iran is the mother of all peace and that war with Iran is the mother of all wars. And then after three days of tweets about the Russia investigation, Trump responded to Iran's president. With all the other storms swirling around him after a weekend of lashing out at Robert Mueller, Michael Cohen, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, the Democrats, and the media, Trump lashed out at Iran in the middle of the night in all caps and rife with, politely put, falsehoods and misleading claims. Never ever threaten the United States again, wrote Trump, or you will suffer the consequences the likes of which few throughout history have ever suffered before, end quote. Again, the Russia probe is closing in and the criticism has not much subsided since Trump's secret conversation with Vladimir Putin. The outrage continues over Trump's initial agreement to hand over former U.S. officials to Russian intelligence for questioning, along with his support for Putin's denial of election meddling and a public shaming of U.S. intelligence and law enforcement. Hundreds of protests cropped up around the U.S. and Democratic lawmakers often joined in. A noisy nightly protest continues across the street from the White House featuring drummers, opera singers, mariachi bands, and bagpipes. U.S. protesters are awaiting the shipment of their very own angry baby Trump balloon, like the one used to protest Trump's visits to England and Scotland. And that's when Trump lashed out at Iran. A week of backpedaling, the politics of guns, and Trump's golden crutches after this. More frequently these days, we're asked to pay for something we used to get free, the news. Now, this news comes to you without a paywall. It's completely free. So 
Please do your online shopping by using and bookmarking the Amazon link at buzzburbank.com. This production gets a small commission from Amazon when you do that, so it's very helpful when you shop through that link for home, school, church, or office. Now, if you'd prefer not to use my Amazon link, please support this free newscast through the PayPal donate button just beneath the Amazon button at buzzburbank.com. Thank you. Trump tried to backpedal his Russia performance. It worked for Republican lawmakers. It did not work on Democrats and independents. Trump backed away from Putin's, quote, interesting and incredible offer, as Trump had put it, to interrogate former U.S. Ambassador to Russia Michael McFaul and 10 other officials to help wrap up this whole unfortunate Mueller investigation. Never before had the U.S. offered up one of its own to the Russians, much less 11 of us. Trump's long ponderance of the idea did not set well. A currently serving diplomat told the Daily Beast he was at an effing loss after hearing Trump was considering turning over Americans to Russia. Quoting that diplomat, he cares more about himself than the nation. Congress hated Putin's idea so universally, the Senate passed a resolution against it by a unanimous vote of 98 to 0. Trump had already tried walking back his comments that it might not have been Russia attacking the U.S. election in 2016, but that hadn't helped either. He'd already missed his chance to say in the president of Vladimir Putin that Russia had interfered, saying it only once he was no longer in Putin's presence. But Trump still refused to say that Putin was lying when Putin claimed no Russian interference in American politics. Trump continued to defend his refusal to firmly confront Putin about the meddling and continued to praise his conduct in that news conference that followed that private chat. And Trump continued to insist that the Helsinki meeting with Putin was a success. And then Trump, in the face of criticism from nearly everyone, doubled down as he is wont to do. And then it was a defiant Trump who then invited Vladimir Putin to Washington, D.C. this fall, sometime just before the midterm election, perhaps. Say that again, responded National Intelligence Director Dan Coats when NBC's Andrea Mitchell read him the breaking news in the middle of a security conference. The nation's head of intelligence was not only not consulted about this invitation, he wasn't even one of the first to know. Once the shocking news had registered, Director Coates laughed nervously and said, that's going to be special. Remarkably, Coates is still employed, but watch that space. He should also not play poker. He has a tell. Coates later recalled his reaction as admittedly awkward, but says he meant no disrespect to the president. And Coates was not the only high-ranking official not consulted in Trump's announcement. This was all about Trump, as most everything seems to be these days. Trump tweeted, The summit with Russia was a great success, except with the real enemy of the people, the fake news media, adding, I look forward to our second meeting. This first meeting with Putin is the second recent meeting with a dictator that's been followed by Trump calling out our constitutionally guaranteed free press as the enemy of the people. We still don't know what Trump and Putin discussed in their secretive first meeting or what agreements they might have reached behind those closed doors. Among those who don't know, the highest ranks of the U.S. national security and military personnel, and they are alarmed and worried. But Trump was ready to get to work. He said he needed that second meeting with Putin, quote, so we can start implementing some of the many things we discussed. 
If only Trump had been accompanied at that meeting by someone besides the interpreter. If only there were some record. If only we knew what had been discussed. Putin may well have recorded the conversation. Trump did not. Trump says Putin's offered help on all kinds of things. Ukraine, Israeli security, the Middle East, North Korea, nuclear weapons, and international trade. The Pentagon was unnerved to hear this, as were our European allies and especially officials in Ukraine. Russia says verbal agreements were made at that meeting behind those closed doors. Important verbal agreements, says the Russian ambassador. U.S. military and intelligence officials have been scrambling to find out what those agreements might be. Our military commander in the Middle East, the man leading the men and women in harm's way, says he has now received no new orders, but Russia keeps talking about these verbal agreements that were made with Trump at that secretive meeting. Trump has said that the U.S. and Russia might start working together in Syria. The Russian military says it's making preparations for this new cooperation. That's interesting, since Russia has backed the Syrian regime while the U.S. has backed those fighting the Syrian regime. It would also be illegal for the two countries to work together militarily. That was prohibited in 2014 after Russia stole Crimea from Ukraine. Quoting the commander of our forces in the Middle East, it's Russia, let's not forget that. And Russian President Vladimir Putin is no doubt delighted that he has now driven a wedge between the U.S. military and its commander-in-chief. The Russian Defense Ministry has now slammed that commander, General Joseph Votel, accusing him of discrediting his president, his commander, and saying that the U.S.'s only option in Syria now is to cooperate with Russia. A White House official says Intelligence Director Dan Coats has gone rogue. Defense Secretary Jim Mattis has not been seen in public for well over a week, as Trump's critics here at home are silenced and banished. Trump makes the decisions now and he's decided to threaten Iran in all capital letters. Yesterday, Trump announced he was delaying this fall's second meeting with Putin until after the Russia witch hunt. The White House says it believes that pushes that second meeting into next year after a new Congress has been seated. But a Democratic Congress and an end to the Mueller probe would seem to make that next summit less likely to happen. Besides, Putin had not yet accepted this new invitation, even though he'd initially agreed that another meeting, quote, must take place. It was a week of walkbacks at the White House from the Putin summit to Playboy's Karen McDougal. Would versus wouldn't blame Russia for election meddling. No to a question about Russian interference this year versus no, I'm not taking any more questions. Saying the president would consider Putin's interrogation offer and then saying he wouldn't. Saying there would be a second summit this year and then saying there wouldn't and backing off from the looming trade war with Europe. It was that kind of week for Trump spokeswoman Sarah Sanders and the press. As Trump left Washington this week for visits to the heartland, Kansas City, Missouri, and Dubuque, Iowa, he'd been told he'd be facing a tougher-than-usual crowd. The auto industry's representatives from companies and unions had already paid a visit to Trump's Commerce Department to passionately call for a stop to his plan to slap a 25% tariff on imported cars. 44 company and union reps testified that day, all of them against the tariff. And they brought foreign representatives with them to testify that their countries would respond to new tariffs with tariffs of their own. Trump proposed the tariffs invoking national security 
as the reason. Trump's tariffs would raise the price of an imported car about $6,000 and drive up the American brands by $2,000 for the retaliatory tariffs that would be slapped on new imported car parts. Coca-Cola says it's raising its prices because of the higher cost of metal cans under Trump's tariffs war. And nothing could quiet the soybean farmers of Iowa who stand to lose millions of dollars this fall if Trump's trade war doesn't end quickly. To retaliate against the tariff started by Trump, China has imposed a new 25% tariff on American-grown soybeans, and that's driven down sales by 20%. And that was the Midwestern wind that Trump would be flying into as he set out for the heartland this week. But he and or his administration had an idea. Emergency aid to farmers. Amid a growing deficit exacerbated by the recent high-end tax cuts for corporations, the Trump administration announced up to $12 billion in emergency aid to farmers who are suffering because of his trade war. Remember, Trump had said trade wars are good and easy to win. China's proving to be a fierce adversary in a trade war. In Kansas City, Trump urged his heartland base to be patient, that in the end, they would be the biggest winners from his policies. Be cool, he told them. But farmers were already hurting in the run-up to this year's harvest as we approach that November election. The first emergency aid checks to farmers will reportedly be dropped in the mail in September. Criticisms of Trump's bailout plan range from socialism to buying votes. And that's just from the Republicans. Arizona's Jeff Flake said, Farmers want markets, not handouts. This is what we feared, more aid programs. Quoting Nebraska's Ben Sass, the trade war is cutting the legs out from under farmers and the White House plan is to spend $12 billion on gold crutches. At that national security conference last week in Aspen, Colorado, the one at which our national intelligence director learned of the Putin invitation from a news reporter, CIA agent Michael Collins was there talking about China, which so far appears to be winning this trade war with Trump. As an expert on China, Collins said China is already waging a cold war against the United States, a war in which no shots are fired, but tensions are high. And Collins said China's goal is to replace the U.S. as the most powerful, influential country on the planet, but without shooting. They don't want to fight, says Collins. They want to undermine. China does, however, also have the world's second biggest defense budget. China's already won back its giant cell phone company, ZTE, thanks to Trump. Trump agreed to remove the sanctions on ZTE phones from China as a pre-trade war favor to China, even though those phones are considered a national security risk and a risk to their individual civilian customers. The phones remain banned inside government agencies, but Trump's promise to lift sanctions on ZTE put China's second biggest phone maker back in business. On Friday, the Republican House and Senate went along with their president and lifted the sanctions on ZTE, even after they had considered tougher sanctions. Well, the deadline's today. Today's the day the Trump administration was supposed to have reunited over 2,500 children with their migrant families. Today's the deadline set by a judge a month ago to return the children taken from their parents under Trump's short-lived zero-tolerance policy. A week ago, the administration had reunited only 14% of the kids with their families. At the start of this week, the progress was up to 20%. 
Also Monday, we learned that most of the parents of the 463 children have um, already been deported without their kids. And no one has yet figured out a way to reunite those families. More than 100 of those parents have decided to go on without their kids, knowing that their kids will be safer in the U.S. than in the violence-torn countries from which they fled. And about that pizza delivery guy who was nabbed by ICE agents as he made another in a long series of deliveries at an army base in Queens, New York. Detained, even though he'd already applied for his green card several months before. After two months locked in an immigration detention facility, 35-year-old Ecuadorian native Pablo Villavincencio has won a delay, at least in his deportation. A federal judge ordered Villavicencio released on Tuesday to allow the undocumented immigrant to apply for citizenship. The judge declared Villavicencio a model citizen. With each passing day, with each new outrage, Democrats and independents who used to skip midterm elections were getting registered and filing for office and winning their primaries and special elections. And they were donating money, more money than the Republicans last month. And in the month of June, for which we just got figures, the Democratic candidates for the House had raised more than $15 million. That's inside of a month before Trump's face-to-face with Putin. The biggest day for donations to the Democrats so far was on June 30th, at the height of the outrage over the babies being taken from their mothers at the border. People had taken to the streets to protest. Right along with that, they also took out their wallets. Republicans still prevail in total fundraising, however, with a $10 million lead over Democrats. The Democrats face one other challenge, uniting, if possible, the party's growing progressive side with its more moderate side. The more traditional Democrats, the Democrats who lead the party, have an advantage when it comes to winning elections. They can attract independent voters, the voters who actually decide the outcomes of our elections. But those moderates also need the more progressive Democrats to their immediate left, along with the centrist to their immediate right. And the more progressive Democrats, righteous though they may be, also cannot defeat Trumpism without winning over the centrists. This is the taste of change in the Democratic Party at a precariously risky moment in political history. The progressives are generally younger, more fervent, and more energetic, and they are in fact winning over some moderate Democrats to their way of thinking. The New York Times cited the case of Rachel Connor, who supported Clinton in 2016 while most of her friends were backing Bernie Sanders. She's now backing a candidate for Michigan governor who's a 33-year-old Muslim advocating for single-payer health care, like Bernie Sanders. Ms. Connor says Democratic leaders, quote, need to wake up and pay attention to what people actually want. Ms. Connor of Michigan may not represent a majority of Democratic voters, but the numbers are growing for those like her. Some of them are running for office and winning primaries against the more moderate Democrats. Blue voters in Maryland rejected several big local names and chose Bernie Sanders' ally and former NAACP President Ben Jealous to run for governor. He also backs single-payer. And in New York, 28-year-old socialist Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez defeated a sitting congressman who was the fourth highest-ranking Democrat in the House. It was nothing short of a stunning victory. Her story has inspired others who share her more liberal views. She showed other progressive candidates how it's done. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez became a national superstar overnight, and the progressive stock went up too. 
This Latina from the Bronx found herself in the beet red state of Kansas preaching that working people in Kansas have the same values as working people in the Bronx or anywhere else. And Bernie Sanders was in Wichita with her, getting cheers from the crowd that were deafening in a state that hasn't elected a Democratic Congress in 10 years. A 26-year-old Sanders supporter said of current Democratic leaders, quote, I think they're generally spineless. Are those Democratic leaders listening to this? Will the two sides of the Democratic Party work this out by November 6th? Will one side prevail over the other? Would sour grapes on the losing side endanger the blue wave? Because a divided Democratic Party is another win for Trump and Putin. Stay tuned. We do know this. The number of young adults registered to vote is up sharply ever since the gun madness that killed 17 people at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in South Florida. Registrations for those between the ages of 18 and 29 have increased significantly in several key battleground states in the seven months since that gun slaughter. Here in Florida, young adults now account for 41% of all new registrations. That's an increase of 15% since the Parkland, Florida massacre. A Harvard study shows that since Parkland, 64% of that age group favor common-sense gun reforms, which is also an increase of 15%. In Florida, this means 28,000 new young adult voters just in the past seven months. And they're not NRA. And now they also vote. And then came the news that the father of one of the Stoneman Douglas survivors had been shot to death in a robbery at his store. He had moved to the U.S. from Bangladesh in the late 1990s. He moved to Parkland just last year, the same year it had been named Florida's safest city before the shooting. Over the weekend, the LAPD found itself in a shootout with a wildly firing suspect who'd taken hostages at a Trader Joe's supermarket. Killed in the gunfire was the young woman who managed the store. On Tuesday, we learned she had died from wounds inflicted by police bullets. In a small, remote Nevada town, a man walked into his Mormon church and shot two people, one of whom died. The suspect had run for state assembly in 2010 and lost. A Nevada senator expressed her sympathy and added, the gun violence across this country must end. Back in Florida, a man angry about a healthy person's use of a handicapped parking space at a convenience store shot and killed the parking violator. And the shooter will not be prosecuted under Florida's Stand Your Ground law. The sheriff says it was self-defense under Florida's remaining NRA written gun laws. And while we're at it, the Justice Department has capitulated to gun enthusiasts' lawsuits and the Justice Department has now approved the sale of patterns for guns that can be manufactured with a 3D printer. These guns, which are already in the hands of a few, are unregistered and untraceable because they have no serial numbers. The Justice Department has signed off on that. The plans for these ghost guns go back online this coming Wednesday. Generation X was the only generation to recover the wealth that it lost during the Great Recession that began in 2008, according to a new study by Pew Research. Gen Xers are the MTV generation, people born between 1962 and 1982. Most of them are now 40-something. Gen Xers were preceded by the silent generation, now in their 80s, and the baby boomers, now in their 60s. They have been followed since by millennials in their 20s, and now behind them, what's mostly being called Generation Z. 
The Pew study shows Gen Xers were also the hardest hit by that long and painful recession and that they have bounced back more during the recovery, just in time for their peak earning years. For nearly a half century, the Endangered Species Act has protected fragile wildlife in the U.S., protected it from progress, logging, ranching, and oil exploration. For 45 years, the Endangered Species Act has frustrated people in the logging, ranching, and oil exploration careers. And now there's a new sheriff in town. And the Endangered Species Act is itself endangered under Trump's drive to remove government regulations from industry even and perhaps especially when plants, animals, and other natural wonders get in the way of progress. The loggers, ranchers, and oil drillers stood ready to help, and now they're working with Trump and his Republican lawmakers to overhaul the Endangered Species Act, make it a little more business-friendly, removing protections from gray wolves and sage-grouses and the lowly but endangered and important burying beetle. Oil drillers hate the burying beetle. Fear not, oil drillers. Fear not, loggers. The spotted owl will no longer stand in your way. There's a new sheriff in town. The Republican Congress easily agrees, saying it's time to modernize this antiquated, endangered species law. Progress. Last year, when Trump Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke led a study of which national monuments to open up for commercial development, his people found evidence that some of the monuments on the chopping block actually boosted local tourism and produced many archaeological discoveries. That evidence was then tossed aside and left out of the final report. The facts were getting in the way of a mission to shrink our national monument parks. We learned of this cover-up through the Washington Post, and we learned from the Salt Lake Tribune that the documents supporting the benefits of those monuments were published accidentally by the same department that tried to bury them. A Republican governor, meanwhile, has signed the Nasty Women Act. In this case, nasty is short for negating archaic statutes targeting young women, and Massachusetts Republican Governor Charlie Baker has signed it into law. The measure repeals laws that in some cases date back to the 1800s, even the 1600s. The measure ends the state's 173-year-old ban on abortion, which wasn't enforced under Roe v. Wade, and the required punishment of women who commit adultery or who fornicate. The state's Democratic lawmakers moved quickly in this effort to remove those laws before Trump Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh takes the bench and cites them as legal precedent. The governor of Delaware, meanwhile, has signed a law banning medical and mental health professionals to practice so-called conversion therapy for minors. Often backed by religious groups, this alleged therapy's purpose is to make young gays and lesbians straight. But now, healthcare workers would face charges of unprofessional conduct, putting their licenses at risk. This so-called therapy is now banned in Delaware. Don't eat that! Meet me at the lake on Mars, and this is not a judgment-free zone. In the third and final segment, up next... Did you know that two-thirds of all men lose their hair by the time they're 35? Your hairline recedes, a bald spot appears. What's that going to look like a year from now or two years? Maybe you'd like to keep the hair you have as long as possible. Here's a pro tip. Don't buy the stuff at convenience stores and gas stations. Buy the stuff from medicine and science, okay? Thanks to science, baldness can be optional, not inevitable. 
4hims.com connects you with real doctors and medical grade solutions to help you keep the hair you have and with money-saving generic prescriptions. 4hims.com is a guy's one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, and sexual wellness. Did you know 25% of all new erectile dysfunction cases in men occur under the age of 40? With 4hims.com, there's no waiting room, no awkward doctor visits, and it's all much, much faster. Just answer a few quick questions, the doctor reviews your answers, and then writes a prescription that comes straight to your door at a fraction of the usual cost. The website is amazing. I'm impressed. Right now, my listeners get a one-month trial of Hims for just 5 bucks and save hundreds of dollars on doctor and pharmacy visits. See their website for details. This is a very limited offer, so hit pause right now and go to 4 slash BBNC. I'll spell it. That's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash BBNC. 4 com slash BBNC. A legacy newspaper cut its newsroom staff in half this week and let go its social media team. The left-leaning New York tabloid, The Daily News, has a new owner sold for $1 after a century of service and nearly a dozen Pulitzer Prizes. The new owner cut the staff in half and it did not play well, especially with the fired social media staff, which later took control of the newspaper's Twitter account. Still strong? Rupert Murdoch's New York Post, a right-leaning tabloid whose left-leaning competition has just been dealt a major disadvantage. And at a time we need more journalism, not less. More than any other, this summer may be remembered in part for the words, don't eat that. Contamination warnings and recalls now include the summertime favorite pasta salad, along with salads from McDonald's, fresh vegetable trays, raw turkey, imported crab meat, Swiss rolls, Ritz crackers, goldfish, and of course, honey smack cereal. Don't eat that. Check your local newspaper for a warning or recall near you. Heavy drinking appears to be the cause of a sharp rise in the number of people dying from cirrhosis and liver cancer. It's up nearly 11% in people between the ages of 25 and 34, largely those who have several drinks each night and those who have multiple nights of binge drinking each week, defined as four or more drinks per sitting. Washington, D.C. has the most liver cancer deaths, followed by Louisiana and Hawaii. Scientists have finally solved the problem of wrinkled mice... Now, if they can only figure out if it'll work on humans, genetics researchers in Alabama found that by manipulating the powerhouse of cells, the mitochondria, they could make a mouse look old, gray hair and wrinkled skin, and then they were able to reverse the process, leaving the mice as healthy-looking as the rest. They wonder if that means we could also reverse these signs of aging in ourselves. What works on animals doesn't always work on people, but these scientists say their research warrants more research. If we ever make it to Mars, I'll meet you at the lake. For the first time, scientists have found a large lake of cold, salty water beneath one of Mars' ice caps. And there are rocks in the water, meaning the water also likely contains other minerals. The next question, of course, is could there be life in that water? Martian coral? Martian fish? Alas, science always asks more questions than it answers. In the meantime, there's water on Mars. 
A falling star may soon be listed as a sexually violent predator. Nearly blind, the 81-year-old Bill Cosby has been recommended for that designation by the Pennsylvania Assessment Board. The designation would apply for the remainder of Cosby's life, and he'd be required to re-register every year and to receive counseling or treatment every month. Earlier this year, Cosby was convicted in the 2004 sexual assault of Andrea Constand in the home Cosby then shared with his wife, Camille. He has yet to be sentenced. Denzel's Equalizer 2 was the number one movie this past week with a $36 million take its first week out. The Mamma Mia sequel opened as a strong second with $34 million, and the Hotel Transylvania sequel, number one last week, was a strong third with over $23 million. Ant-Man and the Wasp and Incredibles 2 round out the top five. For new movies, previews, theaters, showtimes, and tickets, please click through the Fandango link at buzzburbank.com. Well, the bidding war between Comcast and Disney is over. Disney won, outbidding Comcast after a two-month battle to buy 21st Century Fox. The final paying price, over $70 billion. Comcast says it will now focus on the contest to buy Europe's Sky TV, the European equivalent to our DirecTV. Competing with Comcast for that purchase is Fox, the one with the newspapers and the purported news channel, not the one with the Simpsons. The latest offer from Rupert Murdoch is $32.5 billion for Sky TV. Comcast has just topped that with a bid of 34 But more Americans are cutting the cord from DirecTV, Comcast, and other cable companies. This year, another 33 million people in the U.S. are expected to make the switch from cable or satellite to Netflix, Hulu, and the other streaming sources. Speaking of selling Hollywood properties, the house in the Colfax Meadows neighborhood of Los Angeles, the one used for exterior shots on TV's The Brady Bunch, is up for sale. The asking price is $1.88 million, but you might want to have $2 million ready, as there could be a bidding war there, too. Donald Trump's star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame was completely destroyed yesterday morning by a man with a pickaxe. The 24-year-old Austin Clay has been arrested on suspicion of felony vandalism. Police say he didn't tell them his motive, but he did turn himself in. A guy who dresses as Superman, posing with tourists for pictures for a living, says he's seen people stomp on the star, give it the finger, spit on it, hit it, deface it with paint and stickers, and allow a dog to relieve itself on it. The hostility began when Trump was simply running for president. First daughter and surrogate First Lady Ivanka Trump says she's shutting down the fashion company that bears her name to, in her words, focus on her work in Washington. Ivanka had been subject to ethics scrutiny for maintaining the business while serving the president and for capitalizing on her governmental association with her dad. A Republican state lawmaker in Georgia now says he'll resign after refusing to do so at first. State Representative Jason Spencer got duped by Showtime's Sasha Baron Cohen, who'd posed as a former Israeli agent who wanted to teach Spencer how to ward off Islamic terrorists. Spencer, as it turns out, is terrified of Islamic terrorists. He says he's gotten death threats since introducing a bill that never passed that would have banned Muslim women from wearing burqas. It's a paralyzing fear with Representative Spencer. He says the comedian took advantage of that fear, convincing him that the best ways to repel Islamic attackers 
include pressing his bare buttocks against the suspected terrorist while screaming, I'll make you a homosexual. Representative Spencer happily complied with Cohen's practice instructions, bearing his ass in an upcoming episode of Cohen's show. Spencer took part so enthusiastically, he even ad-libbed a chant of USA between his screams threatening homosexual conversion. Cohen has duped several prominent Republicans into filming endorsements for his new series, Who is America? Adrian Cronauer has died of what's described as an age-related illness at the age of 79. Cronauer was an airman in Vietnam and did a radio show there, serving as a DJ for his fellow troops. They made a movie about it, although with Robin Williams playing Cronauer in 1987's Good Morning Vietnam, Cronauer's antics were exaggerated. The real Cronauer did battle military censorship, but he never defied his superiors, as did the late Robin Williams' character. Quoting Cronauer from a dozen years ago, if I did half the things he did in that movie, I'd still be in Leavenworth. The investigation continues into why a duck boat set sail on a lake near Hot Springs, Arkansas, as a fierce storm approached over the weekend, or why the passengers weren't wearing life vests and why they had not been shown how to use them. The passengers might have been doomed even with the vest, since in a sinking they are trapped beneath an overhead canopy. Many boaters considered duck boats unsafe for more than just a few passengers at a time. This boat had 21. 17 of them died when that boat went down in the severe thunderstorm that brought heavy winds and high waves to that lake. In Northern California, a truck carrying 70,000 pounds of fresh pineapples crashed and caught fire on the five after the driver fell asleep at the wheel. The driver got only minor injuries, but the pineapples were roasted in a fire that ensued. Please try the grilled pineapple. Texas firefighters believe in spontaneous combustion as it pertains to tortilla chips. For the second time in a week, the Austin Fire Department has battled a blaze at the corn chip factory. Fire investigators say the cause of both fires was spontaneous combustion. The factory had started storing its useless crumbs in cardboard boxes. In the Texas heat, the boxes went off like big firecrackers, often right next to the firefighters who were hosing down an adjacent fire. In the end, the firefighters hosed down all the boxes, which will now have to be kept wet to keep them from exploding. Speaking of hot snacks... A woman in Tennessee says her daughter had to have her gallbladder removed after her daughter ate too many hot Cheetos. The poor girl had been consuming four bags a week of the super spicy snack, which has been banned at a number of schools. A local doctor says he sees probably 100 kids a month after they've eaten too many spicy snacks. This isn't a don't eat that story. It's a don't eat that much of it story. Quoting the doc, I've had patients go to the ER for it. There's a reason children are not allowed to manage their own health care. In Texas, one mom posted a video of her son using his Nerf gun to remove his little sister's loose tooth. He had tied a string around the tooth and then around the Nerf dart and fired. Nerf guns fire those darts at about 35 miles an hour. Anyway, it worked. And afterward, both children cheered with delight. It's not a child, but a British soccer star who is our new hungry, hungry hippos champ. Guinness World Records gave the crown to Axel Twanzebe after he cleared the game of marbles in just over 17 seconds. Those roasted pineapples, by the way, did not make our highway spill of the week this week. 
watermelons did. A truck in Nebraska had lost part of its load, leaving a string of smashed melons near the I-80 split. A few of the melons survived, rolling down the adjacent embankment. And speaking of banks, the life of a woman in Boston's gone back to normal after her brief stint as a millionaire. Bank error in her favor. But 26-year-old Ellen Fleming got a voicemail from the bank informing her that the account she'd recently opened with 50 bucks had accidentally received a deposit of $1.1 million and that the bank would be taking that back out now. Ellen's millionaire status lasted about 10 minutes. She says she is humbled that her family stood by her even after she'd lost the million bucks. And finally, 34-year-old Eric Stagno slipped into a Planet Fitness in New Hampshire, and then he slipped into something a little less confining. After cruising the gymnasium floor for just the right spot, Eric finally sat down on a yoga mat wearing absolutely nothing, completely and totally naked in this yoga class. The other practitioners were disgusted about hygiene, if nothing else. The police were called. Eric Stagno was arrested, taken to jail, and then released on the posting of his $1,000 bail. He'll stand trial in September as it's getting a little cooler in New Hampshire. Mr. Stagno told police he thought a yoga class in New Hampshire would be more of a, quote, judgment-free zone. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thank you for listening and supporting my sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.